Bible with you, would you like to turn to Matthew chapter 22? We're going to read from verses 41 to 46. Uh, if you don't have a Bible with you and you'd like to have one in front of you, if you pop up your hands, our stewards will bring one to you. Uh, so keep your hand up until they do that. But if you'd like one, uh, go for it. In recent weeks, we've seen uh, Jesus field the questions of what we've been calling this media scrum. He's been bombarded with questions. Uh, people like the religious leaders of the Pharisees and Sadducees and so on have been trying to ruin Jesus with his words. So they've asked him questions about taxation, about resurrection and marriage, and about how best to nutshell the law and the prophets or the commandments. But as we come to verses 41 to 46, uh, Jesus breaks with all press conference protocol. He asks a question of his own in order to show them what the real issue is, what the big question is. All the other ones they've been asking are secondary. This, the subject of this passage, is primary. Before we come to read God's Word, let's bow our heads and pray for His help in understanding it. Our Father John tells us that eyewitness accounts of Jesus' life, words, and actions, these are all written down that we might believe that He is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing we might have life in His name. Give us faith to believe and make us alive in him today, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. So reading from verse 41 of Matthew 22. While the Pharisees were still gathered together, Jesus asked them, What do you think about the Messiah? Whose son is he? The son of David, they replied. He said to them, How is it then that David... Speaking by the Spirit calls him Lord. For he says, The Lord said to my Lord, Sit at my right hand until I put your enemies under your feet. If then David calls him Lord, how can he be his son? No one could say a word in reply. And from that day on, no one dared to ask him any more questions. Amen. This is God's Word. Well, I wonder if you've ever had the unfortunate uh, event of mistaking someone's identity. Uh, I'm sure there are lots of funny stories in the room. Do you think it's testimony time? No? Okay, well, I'll share one of mine. Uh, it's usually quite a funny experience. I did have a woman walk up to me in the vegetable aisle in Tesco and say, what would you like for dinner tonight? And I said, Madam, my wife would not be best pleased if I went out for dinner with you. And she just yelped with embarrassment, mistaking me for her husband, who over by the courgettes was thinking this was the funniest thing ever. <laughs> now, mistaking someone's identity can be quite funny or a bit embarrassing. But mistaking Jesus' identity is just not funny. It's actually a very, very serious matter because it can be tragic. But mistaking Jesus' identity is not, some, is not uncommon. It's very common, in fact. And in this passage we're looking at today, Jesus identifies himself as the Son of God. Let's lay it out straight away. He identifies himself as the Son of God, deity. But in our world, people identify him as something less than that. So even among world religions, for example, Muslims mistake him for a prophet. He is, but he's way more than that. Uh, Hindus mistake him for a god among all the other thousands of gods, not the one true god. 
Jehovah's Witnesses mistake him for an archangel. Mormons, a mere man. And outside of religion, of course, the identity of Jesus has been hotly debated. I mean, no one can argue against his existence. He walked this earth 2,000 years ago, and you can't argue against that anymore. But lots of people have different ideas as to who he is and his identity. He's been both acclaimed and he's been ripped apart. He's been recycled and repackaged so many times as the, the good moral teacher or the epitome of love and lots of other condescending views that fail to pay attention to what Jesus actually believed about himself and his own identity. So who does Jesus say he is? What does he say about his own identity? That's what this passage is all about. And we're going to take it in two chunks. The first chunk, by the way, is, is huge. It's way bigger than the second one, okay? So when we're like 20, 25 minutes in, don't panic. The second point is application, and it will be quicker. Because you'll be sweating. I know you will be. Number one, Jesus identifies himself. This is verses 41 to 45. In 41 to 45, Jesus identifies himself in two particular ways, and both pertain to the subject of the Messiah. I'm not going to presume anything. Uh, I need to explain this to those who maybe don't know what the Messiah is. You see it in verse 42. Jesus asked them, what do you think about the Messiah? That's the subject. Now, the people of Israel back then were waiting for a Messiah, and the Messiah is essentially a king or God's promised anointed king. The word Messiah is a title. It's a Hebrew word that means anointed one. Translated into Greek, it's Christos, from which we get the word Christ. So Messiah is a title given to this long-awaited king that God had promised to send in Old Testament times. And we could say many things about the identifying markers of the Messiah from the Old Testament. And if the scriptures were a tapestry telling the story, you would easily see that there is a consistent thread from the beginning, from Genesis chapter 3 actually, and people's defiance of the, the authority and the kingship of the Lord God himself, all the way through, a thread concerning this Messiah, a promised one to come who would defeat sin and who would reign over all and who would reverse the curse and so on. There are tons of things. But the most distinguishable mark of the Messiah would be his lineage, his bloodline. He would be a descendant of David, or as it says here, a son of David. And that's the first way that Jesus identifies himself. He identifies himself as the son of David. Verse 42 again, Jesus asked them, what do you think about the Messiah? Whose son is he? Well, the son of David, they replied. And they were right. They were absolutely spot on with this. Now, the son of David uh, and Messiah are terms that basically became synonymous because of the promise that God made to King David in 2 Samuel 7. And 2 Samuel 7 is a very, very important chapter in the Old Testament. It's worthwhile going and looking that up later on today. What we find in that time is that David is king in Jerusalem, and there is peace in God's land, uh, the ark, not the boat, but the chest containing God's law, and on top, God's throne, has been brought into Jerusalem, and it's been put into a tent. Now, David is in his palace, and he thinks, this isn't right. I'm under a roof, 
and God's throne is under canvas. That's just not right. So he prays and says, I want to build a house for your name. And God replies immediately saying, no, 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 no. I'm going to build a house for your name. That's what we're going to do. And he makes him this promise in verse 16 of that chapter saying, your house and your kingdom shall endure forever before me. Your throne will be established forever. Now, while there's an immediate immediate application of that promise in the life of Solomon. Solomon, we see, is not the forever king. There's a foreverness about this king that's promised in 2 Samuel 7, which no human being can reasonably fulfill. It's impossible. But God's promised anointed king is going to come from David's bloodline. The son of David is the Messiah. Now, if you go back with me to Matthew chapter 1, flick back with me. Let's see this for ourselves. Matthew chapter 1. And let's see the very first verse. Who does Matthew claim that Jesus is? This is the genealogy of Jesus, the Messiah. The son of David. He uses both terms just to make it crystal clear for us. And the whole passage continues there with his family tree to prove it. You know, scribble it down. There's the connection, David to Jesus, same bloodline. Now, what do people call Jesus throughout Matthew? Well, if you're going to take you to two of these verses, we could have lots. Let's go to Matthew 12. Matthew 12, 22 to 23. And then we read these verses, then they brought him, a demon-possessed man who was blind and mute, and Jesus healed him so that he could both talk and see. All the people were astonished and said, could this be the, the what? The son of David, the Messiah. Okay, so they're starting to clock onto the fact that Jesus is demonstrating all the identifying signs of being God's promised anointed king, Right? And what does Jesus say in reply to them saying this? Absolutely nothing. Absolutely nothing. He does not deny it. Jesus, who corrects people who mistake his identity throughout the Gospels, does not correct them. He's the son of David, God's promised anointed king, the long-awaited ruler. Or flick over again to Matthew chapter 21 and verse 9. Matthew 21 verse 9. As Jesus rides into Jerusalem to shouts of praise. Verse 9 reads, the crowds that went ahead of him and those that followed shouted, Hosanna to the son of David. There it is again, the Messiah. What does Jesus say to the religious leaders who demand that he rebukes the people for saying that? Well, in Luke chapter 19, a corresponding passage which confirms the one we have in Matthew says, Jesus replies, I tell you, if they keep quiet, the stones will cry out because they're declaring the truth. And the son of David will be praised. All of, all of that to say, he is the son of David, God's promised anointed king, the long-awaited ruler. So Jesus, again and again in Matthew's gospel, is helping people see who he really is so that there can be no possibility of mistaken identity. Now, some will say, why didn't, why didn't more people believe in him? The short answer to that, in a sense, is that they knew they thought they knew what they were looking for. They thought they knew what they were looking for. They, they had created some kind of 
photo fit of the son of David, you understand, a photo fit of this Messiah comprised of just some of the descriptions of the Old Testament scriptures. But they had, if you like, magnified some of the descriptions that really suited them, like the, the idea of a military leader, a political deliverer, to free them from the oppression of the Roman Empire that was stifling them and quashing them and uh, making their lives a misery. They magnified those kind of descriptions and minimized the characteristics that didn't suit them, so that in the end, what they had in their hands was more like a caricature than a photo fit. You know, where certain features are magnified. And this error in interpretation is giving more weight to one aspect of Scripture over another, and that's what Jesus goes after with these people. He says, you're looking for a political ruler, a mere man, but if you read your Bible properly, you would see that the Messiah is way more than that. So Jesus took them to Psalm 110, which we read earlier. It's the go-to psalm for understanding some of the most simple things about the Messiah. It tells us simple things like the Messiah is going to rule as king over all. From shore to shore, it's not just, this is not just a nation, this is not just an empire, this is global dominion. And what it says is that his enemies would be defeated, his enemies would be under him, he would be over them. The older translation talks about them um, the enemies being his footstool. But it also says that he's going to be a different type of king. He would be a priestly king, enthroned forever. We sing about this. Actually, we sing about lots of these things in Christmas carols. I was tempted to throw in a few today, but I didn't think once in Royal David City would work well in May. But it's, this psalm speaks about a person whose jurisdiction and power is broader than any earthly king. And the psalm is very clear. This person would be human, but is that all? No. No. You see, this, what Jesus is doing by going to Psalm 110 is helping these people listening to him then and us today to see that he's not just the son of David in terms of his human bloodline. He is, in fact, the son of God. What do you think about the Messiah? He's the son of David. Yes, and more. He is the son of God. And Jesus' criticism is that they missed it. Look with me at verse 43. He said to them, How is it then that David, speaking by the Spirit, calls him Lord? He's speaking about the Messiah. For, when, for he says, The Lord said to my Lord, Sit at my right hand until I put all your enemies under your feet. If then David calls him Lord, how can he be his son? Simple. Let's figure it out. Well, the psalm is really clear. As I said, the person's going to be human, but this Messiah would be someone that David could refer to as Lord. That is king. That is a title of imperial honor. Now, who are the two lords in Psalm 110? That's an important question for us to consider. The first lord is God. Whenever you see the word Lord in capital letters, it's basically the designation for God's name, Yahweh. The second Lord, in lowercase, there is a title of imperial honor, and we know we're not just talking about another human king here, because no human king has ever been said to sit at God's right hand. Okay, think about this positionally. Think about the imagery of that. The right hand of God. 
Who is God and what is he like as a being? Well, he is exalted high above all. The highest authority, the most supreme being in all existence. What then would be the greatest honor to be given to any creature in creation, in his domain? It would be to be exalted, to be lifted up from our low position to his position, to not being underneath him, but to be so exalted that we might be beside him. Now, this honor has never been conferred on any of us, never been conferred on any earthly human being, never conferred on any earthly king, even a biblical one. No one is worthy of that unless, unless, well, unless you're deity, unless you are God. And that's the point that Jesus is actually making from this plain reading of Psalm 110 and making reference to this question of interpretation that the religious leaders and the people of the day just have not picked up on. Yahweh said to my king, the Messiah, come sit with me, my son. How can he be both David's son and David Lord? Well, if he is both human and divine, fully God and fully, fully man as Jesus was, and he can. That's the point that has been driven home. That's the point that Jesus is making. He is making the point that he is not just the Messiah in the son of David terms, but he is the Messiah as in terms of being the son of God. It's, an, it's a claim to deity. So let's not pass him off as something less. We've already seen in the gospel accounts that other, others have said this of him. God the Father himself has declared this over the Son. God said it out loud at his baptism. This is my Son with whom I am well pleased. At his transfiguration, this is my Son whom I love. With him I am pleased. Listen to him. And God says it again and again using the mouths of New Testament authors. Men who spoke as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit, just as David was with Psalm 110, to utter the very words of God and to make this as crystal clear for us as possible so that we can be unmistaken in identifying Jesus. Like Romans 1, Paul, a servant of Christ Jesus, called to be an apostle and set apart for the gospel of God, the gospel he promised beforehand through his prophets in the Holy Scriptures regarding his son, who as to his earthly life was a descendant of David, and who through the spirit of holiness was appointed the Son of God in power by his resurrection from the dead. Who is he talking about? He makes it crystal clear, four words, Jesus Christ our Lord. Lord. High imperial honor, high over all, not just a man, but God. Jesus is the Messiah. So these people in Matthew 22 who are rejecting him, who in three days' time will crucify him, who will strike him on the cheek and pull out his beard, will say, prophesy to us, son of David, 
Who hit you? They will not use the term in praise, only to condemn. Jesus is the Messiah. That's his claim. God's promised anointed king, who in the very foil of Psalm 110 would not only be a king, but a priest. This priest who in the order of Melchizedek would be a priest forever. Priests offer sacrifices for sin. And Hebrews 7 tells us that unlike the other high priests, Jesus does not need to offer sacrifices day after day, first for his own sins and then for the sins of the people. In the first instance, he was sinless. But he sacrificed for their sins, Hebrews says, once for all when he offered himself. When did he do that? On the cross. On the cross to make it unmistakably clear to us that the Messiah would not just be this mighty king reigning in glory, coming with the clouds of heaven and coming with great judgment on those who reject him. But he would come, that's a second coming, he would come in this first instance as a humble king. As an Isaiah 7 king as an Isaiah 9 king, the child that's born to us. And the government, not just of a nation, but of the world, and all things will be on his shoulders, and he can bear it. And he would be everlasting father, Mighty God, Prince of Peace, all terms describing deity, all passages describing the Messiah. But the religious leaders of the day and many of the Jews missed it because they caricatured the scriptures. They caricatured, they had a false photo fit of the Messiah so that when he came, they mistook him for someone else. But Jesus died, and Jesus rose again. And after he rose, he ascended to the right hand of God and was given the name that is above every name, that is, Lord. So that we can know full and well who he is. And he awaits his return when his enemies will be conquered and his forever kingdom brought in. Then he will truly be that priestly king enthroned forever. Son of man, Son of God. You see his claim? Now, application. Point two. What difference does this make for us? Why is this important? Jesus identifies himself here so that we can be unmistaken in our faith. Unmistaken in identifying him as the Messiah, the Son of David, and the Son of God. Now, how does this apply to those of us who are Christians? Well, it's quite simple. If you're a Christian, this, this passage, understanding this passage ought to give you great confidence. You're, you're not mistaken in your estimation of Jesus when you call him Lord and Savior, when you consider him to be the king of all kings. So you can know great confidence. You can have 
great confidence in your confession of Christ as the Messiah, the Son of David, and Son of God. We even see this in verse 46 in our passage. No one could, what do people say in response? What did, the, what did the religious leaders come up with next? They've been pummeling him with questions, one after the other. Jesus asked them one question, and shtum, hush. No one could say a word in reply. And from that day on, no one dared ask him any more questions. Their silence speaks volumes. If you're in a debate, and in the end, you've got nothing to say, you lost. You lost. And these words are about Jesus, and he has unzipped them, pulled out their hearts, and shown them their sin, and they've got nothing to say. And that gives us confidence. Confidence in our own confession of Christ, that he is who he says he is. He is the son of David and the son of God, as Psalm 110 and a myriad of other passages show us. But it also gives us confidence in the coherence of the scriptures, because that's what Jesus appeals to, of course. He points out that the root of the Pharisees' error is not reading their Bible carefully enough. And the fact that the Messiahship of Jesus is in there quite clearly, because he says in verse 43, of course, how is it that David, speaking by the Spirit, so he's talking about the inspiration of the Scriptures, calls him Lord? In doing so, Jesus just, just underscores how confident we can be in the Scriptures that we have in front of us. They're not man-made. They're God-given. I mean, even when you think about where Jesus went to, to in response to their comments, in response to their questions. He's trying to get across, don't forget this, he's trying to get across to them that he is the son of God, isn't he? Who do you say the son of David, who do you say the Messiah is? Whose son is he? Son of David. Do you know what I would have done there? <laughs> Earthquake. No, I wouldn't have just gone like that. I would have caused, that was my, my version of an earthquake, right? It was like, I would have done something powerful. You know, why not make the ground shake like it did when Christ died on the cross? Why not make the sky turn black like it did when he breathed his last? Probably because signs are useful because they point to something. But what's the first thing we do whenever we see a sign that seems out of the ordinary? What do we say? No way. You kind of unbelief sneaks in, but Jesus gives us something concrete to look to. He gives us words on a page, words that are God-given, and says, trust me. Trust me. Look to the Bible and grow in our confidence as we see text after text affirm who, God, who it is that God promised to send when he said there's a Messiah coming and how Jesus is the Messiah. Have confidence, brothers and sisters. This is not man-made. It's not disjointed. It is incredibly well-connected. And we can know it better. The third thing that we have confidence in is our relationship in Christ. I mean, the deity of Christ, you know, is just, it's not just a doctrine to be believed or recited in some kind of creed. It's actually something to marvel at. 
The Son of God is your friend. He is with you and he is for you. The one who is seated at the right hand of the Father is your friend and your brother. I just find that absolutely mind-boggling. How incredible that the Lord God, majesty himself, would relate to scum like me. It's astonishing. And yet he loves to. It is a testimony of his grace and his kindness to do so. And again, the Bible is full of passage after passage which reminds us of the beauty and the joy of this relationship and knowing it and actually having some kind of assurance in it. 1 John 5, for example, we know also that the Son of God has come and has given us understanding so that we may know him who is true. Not know him as in have knowledge about him, but know him as in relate to him. And we are in him who is true by being in his Son, Jesus Christ. He is the true God and eternal life. <laughs> definitively deity, definitively eternal life. That's who the Son is. And fourthly, in terms of our application as brothers and sisters in Christ, have confidence in your defense of Christ's deity. The scriptures come under the closest scrutiny, but they are consistent and clear. Jesus was not mistaken. His words cannot be contorted or twisted. He identified himself as the son of David and the son of God, fully human, fully God, so that we can have utter confidence in his cross and put our faith in him unwaveringly so. What about if you're here and you're not a Christian? It's really great to have you. We're glad you're here. You're welcome every week. We do this and spend a lot of time opening up the scriptures because they reveal so much more to us of God. And by growing in our knowledge of him, we come to understand what he's done for us. But not only what he's done for us, what it means for us. There's, there are implications for the kind of things that we look at here. And I wonder what you think about what Jesus claims about himself here. How all the threads of messiahship in the Old Testament come together in him. What do you think about that? What do you think about his claim to be the son of God? The implication for you really is that you must decide to believe him or not. Now, maybe you'd say, well, I need some more time to look into this. That's totally fine. Where would you do that? Think about that. Where would Jesus have you go? Well, he would have you go to the Bible, which is where he went to. He would have you go to the reliable and trustworthy text that is the Scriptures. And he would have you open it up and have someone explain it to you. We'd be delighted to do that for you. You can do that in a small group study kind of way with other people who are thinking along the same lines as you. That's at something called Christianity Explored that you'll see in your bulletin. You can ask the folks on the bookstall for a book that would tell you about this and help you understand more of Jesus' claims. Or you can ask maybe the person that brought you or one of the stewards to point you to someone who can tell you all about what the Christian life is all about. Help, they can help you read through it and explain it to you. But ultimately, you need to decide what to make of Jesus. 
knowing that you can't be neutral when it comes to understanding who he is or what he claims to be. He doesn't actually give us that luxury. Not after a passage like this, surely you can see that. In a passage like this, Jesus draws a very, a very straight line in the sand, and we must choose sides. As C.S. Lewis, who I'm reading a lot of just now, famously wrote, a man who was merely a man and said the sort of things that Jesus said would not be a great moral teacher. He would either be a lunatic on a level with a man who says he's a poached egg, or else he would be the devil of hell. You must make your choice. Either this man was and is the son of God, or else a madman or something worse. You can shut him up for a fool. You can spit at him and kill him as a demon. Or you can fall at his feet and call him Lord and God. But let's not come with any of this patronizing nonsense about his being a great human teacher. He has not left that open to us, Lewis says. He did not intend to. Surely we can see that from this passage, friends. What do you think about the Christ? Whose son is he? What do you think? Psalm 110 and this passage would say that he is the Christ, the son of the living God. And Psalm 110 would also say that those who are not on his side will be a footstool for his feet, treated as enemies, not friends, but those who believe in his name, he'll make them children of God to be bounced on the lap of the one who sits on the throne. That's what Revelation shows us. And Jesus tells us all what we must do. He's just finished last time. We looked at this last week saying the greatest commandment was to love the, the what? Love the? Love the Lord. Who's he talking about? With all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, with everything you've got, who are you to love, according to Jesus? Him. Because he's the Son of God and worthy of our praise. Let's pray together. Lord, you've said that if anyone acknowledges that Jesus is the Son of God, that you live in them and they in you. Thank you so much for this church family, for all the believers present here, present here today who can say this for themselves, who have acknowledged the sonship of Jesus, his deity, his messiahship, and who can rejoice at the fact that you live in them, you live in us and we live in you. Please, uh, would you help our friends who are considering what has been said in this passage today or what has been sung in these songs, help them to think more carefully over this really, really critical decision. And may we all sing your praises in Jesus' name. Amen.